Hello and welcome to the Thriving Three Counties podcast with me, Dan Barker. Conversations with inspiring business people throughout the three counties of Herefordshire, Worcestershire and Gloucestershire. And now it's time for today's episode. I hope you enjoy the show. Okay, hello and welcome to this episode of the Thriving Three Counties podcast. I'm Dan Barker and I'm here in the studio with today's guest. He's an engineer with a passion and skill in business, a combination which exists, but in my experience can be rare. We've been working with him and the business he manages for a couple of years now. And in that time, I've watched him help grow the business through hard work, enthusiasm, dedication, a few all-nighters and a commitment to detail that will leave most of us weeping in the corner. He grew up on a farm in rural Herefordshire and has held several positions at prestigious engineering companies over the years. His mother's accounting skills have rubbed off on him and his career has moved more towards the business side of things recently, where he's been able to combine his love of engineering with the running of the business. He is Dan Cook. Hello, Dan. Good morning, Dan. How are you? I'm good, mate. How are you? Very well, thank you. Thank you for having me. No, thanks for coming in. You're a busy man. You've got lots going on, so appreciate you coming over um before we get started people can come find you guys at katava which is k-u-t-a-v-a-r.com correct esco e-s-c-c-o.com .co.uk .co.uk on that one and uh, and also your your personal linkedin profile yes. which is getting more active as the days i'm a on. newbie to linkedin yeah how are you finding it Fine, it's a good way of uh, connecting with the right people. Yeah. We're sifting through. Yeah, do you use it kind of for sales and that, and that sort of thing? Um, I don't personally, but the sales guys do that work for me, yes. Right, okay. But, um, I'm, as I say, I'm a newbie to it, so <laughs> I'm just bedding in. Yeah, yeah. Are you, are you sort of building up your connections and stuff? Like yes, that, I think uh, I don't have, I think I've less than 100 connections at the moment. But, but they're um, all quality ones. They're quality Quality, quality rather than quantity. quantity exactly. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, I think there's a good argument for that, isn't there? Because yes. you know who you're talking to then. Yes, yeah, so I don't want to be a badge collector of names. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no comment. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, good stuff. Um, but yeah, so people can connect with you on LinkedIn if they uh, they want to. More than welcome. And uh, come and have a chat and also come over to Katava and see your... Yeah, come over and see our premises. Um, cool machines. Um, we're very proud of what we've accomplished there in terms of where we're located and actually the facilities we've got. Um, yeah, being yeah, able to yeah. um, source and supply the, the products we do on the ESCO side, but also in terms of the manufacturer on the Catawba side. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's cool. Um, would you describe yourself as an engineer or uh, or a business? I'm person? an engineer. Th- yeah, through through and yeah. through to my core. Yeah. Um, but I love engineering, but also part of that, you need to take it to the next level, which I always wanted to do and, and incorporate that sort of entrepreneurial business sense into mm. there. And um, yeah, I think it's sort of a natural fit for me, really. Yeah, okay. It's not always, I think, for all engineers, is it? That's sort of what I seen when I was in engineering. Like, you'd get people that were great at engineering and then they'd get promoted to, you know, a manager level, but they didn't have the skills to do that. Yes. But they were excellent at engineering. They should have kind of been doing the engineering. And it's a really tough one, I think, isn't it, amongst all engineering companies from what I can tell. Yeah, the transition between I went sort of <clears throat> a sort of production through 
um, design engineer as well, coming from BMW and Renishaw, where my first sort of taste of engineering in those sort of companies, they're very much well mentoring you. Yeah. Um, and, and then I moved on to PCC, um, Precision Cast Parts, which then took you to that next level of, of, of becoming not such of a manager, but going on to that sort of leadership skills. Right. Okay. Transitioning from there. And they gave you good good sort of training and stuff yeah. in the leadership side of things. Well, it's probably a sink or swim scenario, but, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Did you sink or swim? Well, I, I'd hope to think I, uh, I was swimming. I was treading water, let's put it that way. <laughs> So uh, going back then, uh, what, what did your childhood smell like? So I'm from rural Herefordshire. Um, I grew up on the family farm, um, an arable farm. Right. Um, yeah, wild childhood, you know, very free, motorbikes, nice. horses. We had our nearest neighbour was sort of one and a half miles away. We could scream and shout oh, really? and do Proper as much rural. as we want. It was really rural. Okay. Uh, which I loved. Yeah. Um, building dens at five years old, you know, do anything you want. But it was like my mum and my parents are really good parents. You know, thankfully my parents are still alive, you know, really guided us well. Yeah. Um, and that's the core, I think, to where I am, the success at the moment now really is. I've always had that stable guidance. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, yeah. You know, my dad would always help out. As I said, you know, my mum was an accountant, good on numbers. You know, I, mm-hmm. I suppose initially when I was at school, I struggled. Right. Um, because then it turns out that I was actually dyslexic. Okay. Um, so I'm a big advocate for, you know, promoting people that with, um, don't ever frown upon dyslexia. You know, I, mm. I take it as a, um, as a real positive in my life. You know, it, yeah. it's allowed me to, my memory is phenomenal, hopefully touch wood yeah. that remains you know but i think you know i can visualize things a lot easier than other people right yeah. and i noticed that as a commonality in, in other people with dyslexia it's sort of a very visual yeah i i, I mean i i'm not, not dyslexic i don't think i've probably maybe got a little bit somewhere in there i think we're all on the spectrum I, yeah somewhere. exactly like and i i always think it's a bit kind of not right that it's a got a dis in it <laughs> which makes it mm. sound like it's less negative. than something mm. negative and that it's labelled as something else because, like, most of the, not most, but a lot of the like really successful people in the world seem to, you know, be what they would call dyslexic or you know something like that. And it seems to me like it's an advantage because you think of problems differently or or solutions. You come up with solutions in a different way to, you know, the mainstream, what would be classed as normal people. It doesn't seem like a. a, a a disadvantage no i mean it's a just to lead on a little further from that the people i was working in special projects at renishaw um i think 40 to 50 percent of those people in in design senior design engineers were actually classes when we got speaking did have dyslexia and i think that really aids people especially Mm. in that sort of 3d visualization of components yeah. and how they like the bill of materials and how they actually come together and assemble together yeah yeah i think you know, i think it's a real um, attribute to people to have that especially in that field of design yeah yeah i can imagine but, um, yeah. But, you know you can overcome this but we're talking about the 90 early 1980s then it wasn't mm. it wasn't such a thing then it wasn't even probably diagnosed really what is a as a as a they, it's a class as a learning disability, but I 
totally <laughs> disagree. It's not a disability whatsoever. It's only a learning disability if the way you're teaching is different to the way that you can completely, understand things. Completely. Yeah, okay, so you, you struggled at school a bit then, did you? I'm reading and writing. I mean, uh, Peter and Jane wasn't the most enthralling book to, to begin with in, in the 1980s. Um, but there we go. But, you know, I've overcome that. I think that's what probably made me more determined. Right, okay. You've learned to sort of... You, you teach yourself the best way of learning, don't you? And yeah. Uh, so, um, so when you came out of school then, I mean, you obviously, I, th I think... You obviously did all right at school. Oh, I, that was just in my early years when right, I went okay. on to high school. Um, yeah, I i wouldn't say I was anything special. I was middle road. Did you figure out the system? I figured out the system, yeah, exactly. I'd look, yeah. It's, um, <laughs> it, I wasn't that. I probably was too immature at school. Right. Um, what do you mean? Well, I probably wasn't that laser focus on... Uh, qualification. I knew I was going to get the qualification, but I wasn't aiming for top top grades. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that's really ever affected me. No. But when I left school and I become um, did A levels and I went to university, I become very fine tuned. Right. And I probably did learn the system truthfully at university. Yeah. You know, I probably <laughs> many many exams. I'd worked out exactly the probability of what questions were going to come up, <laughs> yeah. having gone back through copious amounts of past papers. Um, but to me, it wasn't about the the end result. It was about the understanding of right. the topic. Okay. Uh, it's just a formal qualification, isn't it? But now I can recall all that stuff back. Can you? As and when I say most, probably in truth, probably 10%. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I always think I, uh, I, I couldn't really recall the stuff from uni because I think like you, I'd work out which questions were probably going to come up because you go and you get like the last four years of exam papers from the library and then uh, you'd look at them and you go okay that one basically always comes up you'd learn the answer to that one yes you'd do the exam and then like about three seconds later after you're in the pub you forget it all yeah yes that's true <laughs> that's true i think when i was you know at university it was always laid out all the past papers as many as I possibly could, 20 years worth be laid out on a king-size bed and I then I'd work out a ranking <laughs> system so that I'd know the probability and nine times out of ten it paid off. Yeah, there were yeah, the odd yeah. occasion, but that was probably my own fault for being, um, especially in the first year, we're probably not putting enough effort into my university degree. <laughs> <laughs> I think we had very similar yes. uh, probably pattern at university. Yeah. Um, so did your love of engineering come from being on the farm, do you think, and seeing the machines and Yeah, I, well, I think I, my grandfather, truthfully, my, on my mother's side, was um, he was a terrible, I mean, he, he was awful in terms of practical. I mean, it's, it's odd we say he's a farmer, but in terms of his practicality, he wasn't, he wasn't great, let's put it that way. But dad is really practical, hands-on. Right. You know, could turn his hand to pretty much anything. Right. You know, and he was always, you know, come and give me a hand, don't watch, do. Yeah, right, okay. And I think, you know, I was never afraid of actually trying something. And, okay. and to this day, I'm never afraid of trying anything. Okay, that's cool. Um, no matter what, it be in construction, anything, I will always go and... Give it a go. Give it a go, I'm not issue. You know, I, I had this brainwave uh, seven, eight years ago. I thought the boiler guy come to service my boiler and... <laughs> 
within about two months, I was registered on a gas safe program, and then I went and got myself <laughs> qualified as a gas safe engineer whilst working as a as a production manager at Special Metals. So right okay. uh, through night school, but night. Yes. So you could service your boiler? Yeah, I can. Um, but it was nice. never a plan to go and start becoming no, an engineer. No. It was just a... Uh, it was always trying to fulfill my time. You know, I was never settled. I, it's, I'm always trying to... Not necessarily better myself, but mm. fill my time appropriately. I don't okay. want to be sat there watching TV for four or five hours every night. Yeah, yeah. That, that's not me. Yeah, okay. When did that start? Did that start at a young age or was that oh, something that when I was there? I was always, I suppose, entrepreneurial as a kid. I mean, I'd was I'd bought my first clean easy round for two hundred and fifty pound nineteen ninety three and I would go round and I would deliver these catalogues um on my bike and I had a rack sack on my back and then when all the products came in that needed to be delivered. My lovely gran would take me around in a in a car, <laughs> and we would go for miles around the Golden Valley in Hereford delivering products. And I was always entrepreneurial like that. Really, always entrepreneurial. Always okay. trying to. I was always negotiating with my dad because I would go and work with him in the summer holidays. And when I was at school, through high school, it was year seven was seven pound a day. And when we got to year ten. I said, well, it's £10 a day. And he was like, no, 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 it's £9 a day. So <laughs> I saw an advert in the... Um, year 10? In year 10, Bloody yes. Hell. So this was 1995. I, so I said good to work. him, uh, <laughs> no, that's not good enough. You're, you're, you're underpaying me here for my ability. So I went and got a job. I saw an advert for a UPVC sales guy. Right. And back in the day, I mean, it was... Um, it was just canvassing basically and you've got a fee um if you've got a lead and then okay. you basically um if they sold something you got a commission a percentage off that but i struck lucky and licensed in worcestershire and sold a conservatory and um i was only in the obviously six week summer holiday and i only worked five weeks but i had 1800 pound commission alone in that <laughs> time so i remember going into marks and spencer and i bought myself the nicest blazer i could for my last year in high school with gold buttons i thought i was the kitty and i thought yeah so um yeah it paid off didn't it yeah okay on that bit but um just just being that determined and knowing your worth really we do joke about it in our family to this day really (laughs) Uh, where where did that come from because most people, or I don't know, maybe not most people, it seems to me that most people sort of struggle with that idea of worth and asking for what you're worth and what your time's worth and everything. Do you know where that came from at such a young age? I suppose, I, you know, I, my lovely brothers, you know, um, I would always drag them into my bedroom because I had a single, but, you know, in our house there was a three-bedroom house and they shared a bedroom and I was in my own bedroom. Right. And if I was, I'd always drag them in there to see what I could sell to them. <laughs> you know, and I think that it came from that because that went on for years and a young, young, I mean, six, seven, eight, nine years old. Right, okay. And I think, you know, they just went on from there. And it just intrigued you, you Intrigued me, I think, and I always thought, well, it's worth what someone will pay for it. Mm. And so I start right and come left, but you can't go from left to right, can you? You can't take no, the price no, up. That's true. Yeah. So um, I think there's a valuable lesson, really. Yeah, yeah. And I don't. A lot of people have underconfidence, not in their own ability, but say a service. 
you know, if you're given a good service or you're, you're, you're manufacturing a good product, mm. you've got to know that worth. You've got, you don't want to undersell it, mm. undersell the product or undersell yourself. Mm. Mm. Um, but you don't want to overinflate yourself either to be into a into the stratosphere where you're you're not worth that. You've got to be realistic, haven't you? There's a balance, isn't there? Yeah, the fine balance. Yeah, there's an optimum in the middle somewhere. Yeah, yeah. Because like you say, you can't go in too high initially because someone will just say, "Well, no." But you you, you don't want to go in sort of too low because you'll end up just you know going out of business. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, <laughs> Essentially. And then, and then, yeah, as I've said to you in the past, you know, anybody that's in business that's not making a profit, it's 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 just a hobby, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. No matter what scale of sale revenue you've got. Yeah. So what were your so your businesses kind of as you were growing up then were the the clean easy round and then the I mean that was from sort of thirteen to fifteen. Then I was pulling ice creams. Our local Lox Garage is famous for its Mister right. Whippy type of ice cream. Right. Um. Did that until I went to, to then to um, to left school, then had the same conversation again with mum and dad before I went off to college. Um, they weren't going to pay me enough, so then I thought, well, in, during that summer of nineteen ninety six, leaving the Spice Girls were at number one. <laughs> you know, they they were, yeah. girl power. <laughs> so then I went off to what's known now as Avara. I think it's um, Sun Valley. Right, okay. Um, so then I went and worked on night shifts for six weeks. Did you? Yeah, so I was, not, I was not contemplating. I thought, well, I can make more money. I can make double the money in six weeks before I start my A-levels. Right. Um, and then I did that. So... Um, and then during my A levels, I did that for six weeks. I mean, it was cutting up chicken, but it was fine. It was, you know, it was making good money for a sixteen-year-old kid. Then when I went to do my A levels, um, I was at college, and then I realised obviously I could do, I could work as well. So then I was doing, whilst being at college, I was also doing sort of an electrical type of an apprenticeship in a local business in Hereford as well. Right. Okay. So I was earning money at the same time because I wanted a car. Right. You know, all my friends were getting the bus to school, and that wasn't really my. Um, that wasn't for me. It <laughs> didn't go with your gold blazer. No, well, that, <laughs> that had gone by then. But um, I don't know. I just thought it was, it was an enjoyable time. What uh, what sort of approach did your parents take to money and you? Like, did you were you given pocket money and allowance oh, that kind no of thing? Chance. No chance, yeah. You okay. worked for everything. That's what I thought was going to be the answer. You I worked hoped. for everything. Yeah. And that's why to this day I absolutely know the pound of the value of a pound completely. Yeah. yeah. You know, if I go into Sainsbury's and I want to buy a pizza and it's on full price for a fiver, I can afford it, but I'm not going to buy it for a fiver. I'll buy it for 250 <laughs> But that might be probably perceived as a little bit tight, but I just know, I know what things are worth. Right, okay. Um yeah, I mean, you had to work for it, and it's done me no harm whatsoever, none at all. No, no, no. I uh, I ask because it's something that uh, I think about quite a lot in terms of you know my kids and how to approach that. And I think I'm 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 definitely of the conclusion that that is the right approach because because of that reason that it gives you um you, you know you have to work for it and it gives you that motivation and stuff. And I think like. You know, my my parents did absolutely nothing wrong, but we were given an allowance, and I think to some extent that maybe 
made me a bit less hungry at that age to go out and and earn it you know not very much it wasn't a big allowance by you know maybe a pair of jeans or something but it was an allowance and that sort of takes takes that hunger away a little bit and you know as I say I don't blame them for doing it because you want to you know provide for your kids and everything like that and it's the natural feels like the natural sort of thing to do but I think uh, from what I've you know heard from people and, and now hearing what you're saying that that approach seems like a really good one yeah i think i've got an analogy if you're eating bread and butter all day long it's uh, becomes very bland bland and boring but if you want the jam you've got to go out there and earn it yourself to buy it <laughs> yeah. and that's the way i think yeah my parents they never put any boundaries on us yeah you know we were you know obviously they were good parents you know we were taught to be well-mannered courteous but you know if you want things in life you know you've got to be self-sufficient because you know i've got people now friends of mine you know back from school days i'm sort of just turned 43 and they're still heavily dependent in their 40s on their parents financially right. and i'm like wow yeah. i can't I, I i probably yeah i'd struggle to remember where I, it's got to be 20 plus years i've even gone to them yeah would even yeah. approach them and, and 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 it's because that way of being brought up i think yeah yeah was your your dad did farming your mum was an accountant was she an accountant yeah. for the farm or no she worked for um um she worked for various companies in Hereford. so right okay but dad was sort of um, my grandfather was a farmer dad was in construction oh was he so he's like oh, right. you know building of houses and factory in commercial buildings and what his own businesses or? yeah Right, okay. So my other brother, um, my middle brother, is sort of followed in the construction industry mm-hmm. um, through vision building in Harryford. And then my other brother is actually a gas safe engineer who was working for British Gas. So. Oh, right, okay. okay. None of us have um, followed in the footsteps of the farming industry. It's a tough old life farming. Yeah, yeah. So, so your dad had that sort of... Uh that's where the entrepreneurial bit probably comes from. Yeah, for I you, suspect though, it is really because... Um, in truth, my grandfather was a very safe person. Um, he probably played it too safe. Right. Um, he did never wanted to risk his family, which is hugely appreciated. But it also gave, like my mum, probably my dad, then that that ability to have that bit of flexibility because they had that safeguard. So then he could probably, you know, he, my grandfather took my dad under his sort of wing and and was sort of welcomed into the family if, if you like right and then um was given that freedom to flourish mm-hmm. nice so. nice okay so um once you're you're through uni and stuff then you start going into your your engineering career yeah well i um i was i was adamant at the time that i did not want to be paying for university i thought that was a foolish idea <laughs> or it wasn't really worth it so Very i sensible. was, was then when you there were fees, £1,250, I think, at the time. Yeah, okay, yeah. So yeah, It, it wasn't the 9000 that no. it is today, you know. It's, um, no, I think mine was three. I, I thought I was one of the first ones that was... Yeah, initially it was home. 12 but, yeah. I, but it wasn't so much that I... Um, obviously, moving away, I didn't really want to get into debt mm-hmm. to that point. Yeah. So I was adamant I was going to get a scholarship, so then I applied for every scholarship in the land going and... I got one through what was called Rover Group, which BMW <laughs> bought Rover Group and 
Um, I think there's about 10,000 applicants and they were taking on, I don't know, less than 100. Right. But I got through all the sort of psychometric tests and interviews and all that sort of um, jazz. And then we went, had to have a week in Skern Lodge. Right. Which I believe is it's Cornwall way. Um, as a team, but it was really was. It was a Monday to a Friday, so they really could sift out the people right. who were going to work <laughs> in a team. And then, thankfully, I was offered a scholarship at the end of that. And then I in made my merry way to Birmingham um, in 1999. Okay, okay. And then I lived up there, had a good life up there socially, um, university. And then I worked at my scholarship plant. Um, was a new um, petrol variant engine plant up to two litre at Hamsall in right. North Warwickshire. Okay. So after my degree, again, you had to apply. Uh, then uh, they took me on after my scholarship. Right. Um, which basically, obviously with the scholarship, it, it paid for my living accommodation up there. So I was never getting into that debt mm -hmm. where people are now. I mean, it's completely out of hand. Now you really have to... Yeah, it needs some serious thought if you're going to go to university and and. I think so. Yeah, like I, I, it's funny, isn't it? Because like you, I you know I had a great time at university and everything, and I came out with a bit of debt, which wasn't yeah. you know wasn't great, but not like what they're coming out with now. It's like what is it like sixty grand or something? Most people. I mean, it. yeah, it's just it, it's like it's free money. Yeah, and especially you know everybody everybody here that talk you know if there's anything on the radio or in the news, it's always about the threshold at the point you have to start paying back. Yeah. And I just think, does that not psychologically put a limit on you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, oh, I must not earn over X amount because I'll have to even, I'll have to start paying back. I mean, yeah, that's not good to be embedded in your brain at, at coming out of university, is it? No, no. Because you want to no. maximise that degree. You know, it should just limit yourself the entire life to get to 65 and retire and thinking, why did I do that? Yeah, yeah, it's, um, and also, like, it is, you know, when you're 18, it does feel like free money, doesn't it? <laughs> well, it was for me, so I was 18 and 19, and of course, in those days, they had this um, egg credit card, and it was 0% balance transfers <laughs> and rates, and I knew, I thought, well, I'll pay this back, and I'll pay that back, and, yeah. and then I thought, buy stocks and shares, and I'll get a credit card out, this egg credit card, it's free money, I'll start investing right, in, the, yeah. in the FTSE 250 and all share. Yeah. And then if that goes well and you think you keep hanging on, hanging on, hanging on and then your shares collapse and then you realise you're in a, <laughs> you've got a slight issue and paying back and then they come in, you know, these um, banks, they, uh, they're giving an umbrella when it's uh, sunshine but they'll take it away when it's raining so, and I learned that very quickly. So Right, did you? You, you I made did. that mistake. How old were you then? Oh, 18, 19. But, you know, I, again, never went back to the parents, never told them, you know, just sorted it out myself. But what I'm amazed with is, like, your ability to have that long-term, take that long-term view at age 18 about investing in stocks and shares and things, because I, I was rubbish, basically, like, uh, at that age. I didn't, like, know anything about any of that, and I didn't, I that was the problem. I, was, I didn't either. I, think was, <laughs> I don't think I was able to sort of take that long-term view. Do you think that's something that you're you've been brought up with as well as this ability to sort of think more long-term? Because it's a great thing. 
I think, you know, when you started listening to these, like, you know, people look at, people look on TikToks now and social media and the internet's all available. Yeah. But um, I remember reading an article, Yahoo Finance. I mean, Yahoo was the search <laughs> engine of the day, wasn't it, in 98? Yeah. And I remember uh, kind of stumbled across this article um, of um, uh, Warren Buffett and Munger, his partner, oh, Charlie yeah. Munger. Yeah. And then I bought his almanac, um, which is a book published. And I, I sort of got interested that way, really. And I, right. Anything to do with numbers is is, is really interesting to me. Uh, if okay. it's, if it, I really thrive on, on dealing and being involved and surrounded by numbers, but also can remember right. that and recall it. Right, okay. okay. But I always wanted, I think, you know, I've got to always better myself. I've always wanted to better myself and... You know, you've got this idea in life, what you want to do, isn't it? where you want to be at the sort of age of 65. And I never want to get to those points where you retire and have any regrets. Yeah. I mean, we'll all have regrets in life. It, it'd be naive to say we're not going to have regrets. Yeah. But as long as they're few and far between, that would be okay in my, in my book. Yeah, yeah. I have to admit that's something that I think often when I'm making decisions is would I regret not having done this when I'm, you know, sort of 90 or something and I can't do anything about it anymore. Yeah, exactly. But I think people, I don't know, sometimes you just got to go with your gut. And a lot of times I do go with just my gut because I probably processed it enough in my own mind. Mm -hmm. Because the worst thing you can do in life is not make a decision. You've mm -hmm. got to make a decision, good or bad. Mm -hmm. And if it's a bad decision in the end, it may lead you on to another path that ultimately become resulting in an amazing decision. Mm, mm, yeah. Uh, and I think people give too much consideration and then they, they are left, uh, they're left stuck mm. and the decision and the decision is taken out of their hands. Yeah, yeah. And then they have to spend the rest of some time then justifying that that was what was meant to be. Yeah, yeah. And I'm not a believer in that was what was meant to be. Just make the decision. You make the decision. Get the feedback. Yeah, you know, make the decision, you know, in a clear way to yourself. You know, give yourself that time. And then once you've made that decision, stick to it. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I heard that once. Uh, decide quickly and change your mind slowly. Or fail, fail fast. Yeah, yeah. Get was it they say? Get to a no fast as you can or something. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's a... Uh, it, you're right, because that decision-making thing can just cripple you, can't it? I heard something the other day, like, I forget the number now, but the average adult in the UK takes something like 14 days to decide on, you know, which product to buy when they're buying something, you know, buying something on Amazon or whatever. Wow. Like, to, to work it all out, and I just I just can't be doing that. <laughs> the amount of time they waste in doing that is just... Yeah, you could be fulfilling your time with something better, an energy, and more it? meaningful. Yeah, yeah. I like to just sort of go to someone that knows about the thing that I'm buying, ask them, and then buy it. Go to the expert, make the decision, <laughs> yeah. yes or no. It's a binary, isn't it? It's one or zero, <laughs> and crack on with it. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So, throughout your engineering career, and you know, up to sort of where you are now, like you talked about wanting to always better yourself and learn and everything. What were you doing? It, was that sort of outside of the job or within the job or were you, how did you sort of approach that? I suppose for me, from every position I'd held, I was always 
wanting to be promoted to take more responsibility okay and obviously naturally going from an engineer you can only go so far as an engineer in mm. any company um and and the natural progression was into leadership management what okay. management then leadership yeah um and i suppose where i ended up where i am today you know being the general manager of both esco and catava i'm not a manager really i'm i'm a leader of people and that's yeah. completely different to management. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I suppose I just sort of had an apprenticeship, if you like, in in managing people. Right. Whereas now I'm I'm a leader of people, and that's great because I've got managers working for me, which is great to see them, and I want them to progress onto leaders. Mm -hmm. And and that's the key thing. Mm -hmm. um, I'm bringing people in all the time into the business now, where I want them to be better than the last person coming in. And mm -hmm. ultimately, I want them to be better than me. Yeah, yeah. Because they don't want me hanging around forever. I don't want to hang around <laughs> forever. One day, you know, nothing is forever. And I think people forget that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I want to make people, these managers, into leaders. Yeah, you manage things and you lead people, right? I've had great mentors, really. Some, yeah. You know, predominantly great mentors. You know, there's been a few rogues in there. But you learn lessons off them as well. Yeah. How not to be. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm never sort of a shouty, aggressive type of leader. I mean, we do have some, I would say, courageous conversations at points where things are, <laughs> you know, become a bit of a, a sticking point yeah. in the growth of the business or there's an area that really needs a special attention. But ultimately, I want to be part of that team and I want people to feel free and develop themselves. Right. And yeah. I want to give them all the tools and all the encouragement and all the help I can possibly give them to get there. Yeah. But it's got to come from the person. Yeah. It's got yeah. to come within. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, just uh, I think it's been a natural progression for me. As you, going back to your original question, going from an engineer to a manager to a leader. Mm. Okay. Okay. And I suppose your, your sort of background, you know, in terms of the, you know, the entrepreneurial stuff early on, that sort of leads you in that direction naturally as well, doesn't it? It does. And I probably, <laughs> it's probably, in, truthfully, it's, it's installed in me well, at birth, really. It's. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think people can learn. I mean, I'm doing an MBA at the moment, um, and there's a, a module on entrepreneurship. And I thought, well, to me, you're either entrepreneurial or you're not. Or you can have, or you can learn entrepreneurial <laughs> skills, but are you entrepreneurial is another thing. Yeah. And entrepreneurial is about taking calculated risks at the right time. Uh -huh. Um. I think everybody wants to be entrepreneurial now or intrapreneurial, isn't it? Within within companies, is corporates. Yeah, yeah. It's become, I suppose, on, yeah, entrepreneurial things become a little bit but blurred, know. hasn't it? Yes. But yeah, that's a good. I like that description of entrepreneurialism. <laughs> yeah, right it, it is something. It's in, no intrapreneurial. Yeah, yeah. Whereas within a corporate environment, I mean, someone I think the people actually concepted that word was adobe i think oh was it with their red box right i think you've got a thousand pound for entrepreneurial you've got given a, a red box with a thousand dollars on a credit card and you you had a day a week to work on your own project right yeah yeah which i think um that's pretty cool isn't it it's very cool that's what they do at google as well that's how gmail was invented was it really okay? yeah yeah because they give them 10 percent of their week okay to work on their own projects and then from that sometimes they spin out things like gmail and yeah who knows what else has come out of it but um yeah it's a good thing post-it notes yes 
as well. <laughs> Actually, that, yeah, that, that wasn't was, quite in, on entrepreneurial, was it? It was more like um, people being encouraged to share 3M. their mistakes. Wasn't that through 3M? Yeah, yeah. I think there's a company out in California, IDEO. Right. I-D-E-O. Right. I think they're um, an innovation design company that go in and help these corporate companies. Right. Look at that. I think they did that with 3M. Yeah, well, the story I heard was that um, someone was in 3M was trying to come up with an idea for some really sticky glue. Yeah, and he he wasn't getting it, and and but they had this culture in there where they were encouraged to share their mistakes, and mistakes were encouraged because you know it's the only way you learn, isn't Absolutely. it? Absolutely. And uh, he was trying to in, he was trying to invent this really sticky glue, but instead he invented this really rubbish glue yeah and he left it out for people to see and someone came along and said and then came up with the idea for the post-it note from the uh, the mistake of the the really sticky glue that's a really cool story yeah yeah it's good isn't it yeah. um i think yeah we're, we're we're often too often you know taught not to make mistakes and yes. you know like going back to our our university exam papers and things yeah, you can't make a mistake because that's bad. But actually, when you get to learn a bit more about it, you find out mistakes are good, and it's the same thing as what you're saying, isn't it? Getting to a no quickly. Yes, I mean it's um, especially in industry. I mean, the, you don't want to sort of have such a broad spectrum, uh, such a narrow spectrum, I should say, that um, you, you're not you're not afforded the mistakes. Because the yeah. best ideas and concepts, as you say, come out of making a mistake and then it's applied in another way yeah 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 so these days with what you're doing then because you're you're involved heavily with running the business and you're involved heavily with the engineering side yeah. i think yeah yes and um your i think your attention to detail <laughs> is something that's uh, that's stuck out to me over the last couple of years uh you know i like to think that i can notice things in a photo and then you'll come out and you'll notice one more thing and I'll be like, damn. <laughs> yeah. It's, is, um, is, that, uh, is that a result of just hard work and always wanting to better yourself? Or I don't know. I find it really annoying really sometimes it's in how you approach people about it. It's, um, it's a bit... Um, people, I'm always driven on quality. Yeah. Quality never stops. Mm -hmm. um, you you can always critique and, and continuous improvement. I've worked in continuous improvement quality yeah. uh, roles in really high spec components, let's say at Renishaw, and then high materials at Timet and Special Metals, and it's always critiquing. Uh -huh. um, it, it is annoying. It can be deemed <laughs> annoying. Um, it's not meant to be, but it's always just evolving. It's, nothing stops. Yeah. In my world, nothing stops. It always carries on. It always can get better. Okay. You never okay. stop. You okay. never the, the journey never stops. You never get to the top of the mountain. You get to the top of one mountain, but there's another. So you've got to love the journey then. Yes. <laughs> you've got to love the journey. That's the message. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, why do you think it's annoying though to do that? Do you think it annoys people around you or does it annoy you? It doesn't annoy me because it's just who I am. Yeah. Um, you, you can sometimes see people. I mean, I'll be having conversations with like the engineers and or um, application engineers, wherever. And in, in most companies I've worked in, and you can see the sort of face drop, 
when you find <laughs> that they like they, they, you know the reward the 10 out of 10 but nothing is ever perfected is it otherwise it would stay um yeah it would stay as it is we'd never be evolving in sort of automotive cars aerospace rail it's always evolving innovation it's, it's key isn't it yeah 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 absolutely but, you know, it's always critiquing. There's always, you know, we where we were sort of on our marketing and liched and marketing assets we had originally in Esco and Katava. I mean, they have come out on leaps and bounds. I mean, you know, we were talking the other day, you know, with the video we've just done with you. You know, to me, it's like the best video ever. It's always, it's always <laughs> got to be the next photo or image or, or or video's always got to be another stage on, hasn't it? In terms yeah. Of yeah. Better quality better message put out to the customer mm, yeah i suppose that thing if you're not going forwards you're you're actually going backwards aren't you yeah exactly well if you're not going up you're going down kind of thing because if you stay stay what you think is level everything else is still going up so you're actually falling down exactly right? yeah. you can take it a bit like inflation yeah it's always going up <laughs> yeah yeah what yeah. should be it's never going to come down <laughs> well yeah, yeah. Okay. Interesting. So, um, I mean, yeah, you, you've you've developed this product with the guys there at Catava and yes, we have. You yes. know, brought out a whole new product, and I, I, I don't, I can't even imagine the amount of time that you've put into that. I know when we came on that first filming day that you, you know, you all pulled an all nighter trying to get it all assembled and everything, and I, I'm sure that's just the tip of the iceberg with. Uh, the amount of work that's gone into it, but you've been involved in the whole thing, I suppose, you know, the, the, every aspect of it from the engineering to the sales, to the marketing and, and the whole, the whole lot. So tell us a little bit about that and what that journey's been like. Yeah. When I went into the company, um, I started at ESCO 2018 mm -hmm. and the company had gone through some financial difficulty, um, various owners and it got to a point where the the company was stable in terms of its leadership like the directors mm -hmm. um and then it came in i should say i came in and basically there wasn't that when i came into the company there was not so much of a fear but no one had that um confidence right and you could see the confidence was low within the business. You know, it was okay. making a loss. But yeah. if you're making a loss, no one's confidence should be high. They're, they're, they're a lunatic if they're, their confidence is high and you're making a loss. <laughs> um, but I think really what I, I'd noticed straight away that there wasn't that quality in terms of how you go about doing something. They just never, the company had never been exposed to that. I mean, we, we've still got all the same people now. Mm -hmm. And the skill set of those people is unrecognizable, mm -hmm. you know, and the confidence that people have got and the skill set we've got is phenomenal. Yeah. And that's just with the same people. Right. And yeah, I think yeah. that goes, that's not management, that's leadership, just showing the way really. And I knew yeah. we could do it. Um, and it wasn't, you know, you know, we're not, we're not, um, it's just down to material and how you go about that quality and finesse and just start off small. Mm. I mean, for example, on the Catava, I mean, on on the plasma side, we started off with a breakaway head. The way I went into production once, just to go into production, I said, right, guys, I want you to show me how you're doing this. Because it looked very Heath Robinson, the way it was all assembled together. There was, like, huge amounts of 
bits of metal clamped to each other. Right, okay. Well, this cannot be done like this. Sign for manufacturer, that should be done out of one part. Right. You know, and that was unheard of. <laughs> I went, I couldn't do it. I literally could not get this part to work. And then that was just all back down to the skill of the guys in production. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm a engineer, very practical, and I couldn't get it to work to have a a component to go onto the machine to be shipped. Mm -hmm. I thought this has got to be better. So we came around there and we started designing designing um, a new breakaway head for the torch, mm -hmm. which is the part of the plasma, which basically is the working end of the machine. Yeah. And we went about that and it just started on from there, really. And I thought, well, we've improved that. And we've got that bit done. Let's move on to the next bit. And then right, yeah. it evolved again back to that. What I was just talking about before, always evolving. And now we're, we're at a stage where the machine is um, so accurate, so repeatable, mm -hmm. um, really elegant piece of heavy duty piece of equipment, which I think we're all very proud of, really. Yeah. All designed in-house. Um, machine to the tightest of tolerances, pokey yoke, so you can't assemble in an incorrect way, mm -hmm. anodized surface finish. You know, it aesthetically it looks beautiful, but in terms of the performance, it completely meets that. Mm -hmm. It's performing beautifully. Um, and I want us to make sure that we're not following competition by having issues with stripping out components to lower cost to lower quality. Mm. I'm always want to keep quality going up. Yeah, yeah. Which is key for us. And also on the ESCO side, I mean, I want us to be offering quality products. Mm -hmm. You know, we weren't offering nowhere near the, the types of products we are now. And it's just completely turned and revolutioned the business around. Right, yeah. Bringing the quality up. And, Absolutely. Uh, going for the best, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we want to be the UK's premium welding supplier. Yeah. And and that's our that's our that's our strategical goal, and that's what we must remain on that. Mm -hmm. And on the Catawba side, we want to make the best in class um, piece of equipment for those customers that demand that repeatability and that robustness of the, of, of the equipment. They can put it into a cell arrangement, and that machine won't be the won't be the piece of equipment that lets them down. Yeah, yeah. So, at what point do you think, like you're saying, people were, you know, a bit demotivated and a bit disillusioned and everything before? Was there a point where you sort of saw that turn? And what what were you doing, or what was the company doing at the point that people started to feel more motivated? Yeah, I think it's um it's a good question, really, but I don't think there's actually a, a day or a week I can actually pinpoint that. Right. But yeah. It was just basically working with the team day in, day out, being involved with the business, mm -hmm. the day-to-day -day running and the structure of the business. And if you're if you if you're joining as a as part of that team, they're gaining confidence in you. You're gaining confidence in them. You're educating them. They're educating you, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and you become you you form a bond. Yeah, and then it's sort of like you really then want to fight for the business. Yeah, and then you essentially you give people responsibility and ownership, mm -hmm. and when that goes right, and if you've got the right product and you've got the right um, mentality, you can make that work. The right systems involved. Mm -hmm. You know, we know what the customers we want to target. We know the industries we want to target. Mm -hmm. Then it makes it a lot easier. 
Mm-hmm. And as you then you sort of get those early successes, come on, it gives you more confidence. Mm-hmm. And people grow up for the business. You go in there now, we're booming with confidence. Not arrogance, but confidence. We, yeah. we have complete control of our of our of how we design the machine, con- complete control of our own cash flow. You know, we've we, you know, we're in a good stable position, which mm. you know, I'm hugely thankful for and proud of and I and I know the people in the company are. Mm, mm. You know, that company doesn't need me. If I disappear for it, that company still runs. Yeah. You know, and that's what that's an achieve that's my biggest achievement. I think, you know, it, it goes, it runs. Yeah. Well otherwise it's not a business, is it? If, no. it? if it relies on one person. Well I've just bottled the business. I don't want anything you know, I want that business yeah. to run. I don't want to be the bottleneck. Yeah. Yeah. Which is yeah. an awful thing to be. that's why I go back to the want people to be better than me. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, look, we're just coming up for nearly an hour, would you believe it? <laughs> I think we've covered some ground and uh, it's been been very interesting. So, um, yeah, again, if people want to come find you, connect with you on your LinkedIn if they want to connect More than happy. personally. If you want to see the machines and, and what you've been making, it's katava.com, which we'll, we'll put the links in the uh, show notes and stuff anyway. And if they need some welding supplies, then it's yep. uh, sko.co.uk. Correct. How come you've got co.uk and .com? Uh, truthfully, the .com was taking, so I have bid to get sko.com. All oh, right. <laughs> Who else could want that? <laughs> I don't know. Some of them wants $10,000. Oh, right. Okay. Fair enough. That's probably a yeah, good enough reason. Fair enough. Cool. Well, uh, Thank yeah. you very much. Thanks, Dan. You've been listening to the Thriving Three Counties podcast with me, Dan Barker. You can find links to all the episodes and show notes over at danbarkerstudios.com forward slash podcast. If you've enjoyed today's show, please head over to iTunes and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show and connect more people in the region. Thank you very much for your time listening. I hope you've enjoyed it and we'll see you next time.